reason we're doing this meeting originally was that we had a meeting in the House of Commons some time ago on the same topic. And Rayla, who is back somewhere, and John Woodhouse is back somewhere as well, said that we should have another meeting where we get an Islamic perspective on war terrorism and community so that we can try and understand each other's point of view. And um, we thought that was a really good idea. So that's when I contacted Conway Hall and said, and to see if we could do a joint meeting on this. And uh, they agreed, and we're very happy to have agreed. What we wanted to do was find a way, and an array of it especially, in which people can talk to each other. Um, they can be blunt, and uh, uh, as I told you, it's going to be blunt, which is good. Um, people can be blunt, but in that way, you can try and understand where people are coming from. And then we tried to see how, in this multicultural world that we're living in, in country, we can create the accommodations that's necessary to live together and have the sort of well-being that we all want. And this is our first attempt to try and do that, and I hope it works quite well, what we're seeing, and I hope we will carry it on. The topic, then, is um, war, terror, and, and community. Hello. And we've got two speakers. Uh, one is, is Astra Abukhak, who is well known. Um, I know he's done a lot of press uh, uh, and, and television appearances. He is on the Muslim Public, Public Affairs Committee in the United Kingdom. And we're really pleased that he's come along and he's going to join in with this. We were going to have Saeed Ali Razawi, who is a Shia Muslim, but he got called to an emergency meeting. And he told us at the beginning of this week, and um, Ashwell very kindly agreed to uh, join in. Ashwell is also very well known. He's a broadcaster as well. He contributes to a number of national radio and TV stations, including the Islam Channel and Channel S. Uh, Channel S. He's an imam, and he has three mosques that he often visits, and one of them is Palmer's Green, where I live. And I can tell you, the Palmer's Green Mosque is an incredible mosque. It's a new mosque. It's got obviously the area where people pray, but it's got an education centre. And in 2001, I started the uh, United Nations Association there. And since then, we've had several meetings in the mosque. And we had hustings before the last general election that we held in the mosque. And lots of young Muslims came. It's the first time they'd had a chance to put their views to prospective MPs. The only party that didn't turn up, by the way, was UKIP, and you could probably guess who was. Um, but anyhow, it was a very, very good meeting, and Palmer Street Mosque is, is, a, is a great place, and I'm glad you're, you're here today. Anyhow, let's start it off with, with the blunt approach, as Ashdor says. That, that, that sort of stops at being blunt. <laughs> um, and uh, then we'll go to. Um, to, to uh, Okay. Oh, by the way, I, I ought to let you know this is being recorded. Uh, Sid said he would record it and it would go on, on his site. So people who haven't come, they have a record on it. Um, thanks. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. And thanks for everyone uh, who's attended to, uh, to hear me at second today. Um, look, there's two stories out there uh, regarding. Can you stand up, please? There's two stories. Okay, can you hear me? Can we go there? You don't have the microphone now. Can't, can't, like, go on to the lecture. I'll give it mine. Thank you. 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 Thank
Mr. Rear Vine, just one. Thank you very much. Is that better? Okay, look, to understand terrorism, to understand what's going on in the world right now uh, in relation to Muslims, the stuff you see on the news uh, around the war on terror, uh, there are two stories. One is uh, the ideology story, what the government say, and uh, uh, many people who believe the government uh, um, like to believe. I will come back to that. The other story, I would argue, is the Muslim story. And for that, you have to go back into history. Europe uh, had, uh, Christendom had an age-old rival in Islam. That many battles were fought. And when Europe had a chance, finally, to dismember uh, the Muslim Empire in the form of the Ottoman Empire, it did so under the Sykes-Picot Agreement from 1914, 1915. And it was Lloyd George who said that we have to make pan-Islamism innocuous. Their aim was to completely eradicate, completely destroy this empire for it never to rise again. For the next 100 years, to ensure that, what they did was something um, near genius. Not only did they carve up uh, um, uh, a new land, created them out of thin air, uh, you can see the map on uh, um, uh, the map, and you'll see these straight lines because they actually carved them up uh, with a ruler almost. Um, but what they also did was try to create and manufacture new identities. Prior, the kind of nationalist sentiment simply didn't exist in that part of the world. There was some tribal, there was some sectarian, yes, but generally people didn't have a, 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 a nationalistic you know, identity of Iraqi or, or um, Syrian or you know, Palestinian, Jordanian, etc. They were Muslims or people of the Ottoman Empire. Now, these new identities were underpinned uh, uh, by these new nations um, by force. So we had dictators installed, strong men installed. And those strong men um, had it was their vested interest to ensure that their land was controlled by them. And they were always going to be weak because the will of the people was never with them. For a number of reasons, so, you know, for example, um, um, the setting up of minority sects over the majority to ensure that there was constant tension and for, for, the, for, for, for the dictator to remain in power. He was always beholden to an outside force to help him out, to maintain the, the, the people of that land. So it was constant tension between the people and the rulers, and that tension would often uh, boil over into bloodshed. But it suited uh, um, uh, the Western powers to keep the Muslim world fractured. They in, it, it had, had you know, previous experience of losing land to, to, to the Muslims in the form of Spain. They didn't want that to happen again. They wanted to make sure uh, uh, that Islam never rose again. And so this arrangement uh, over the last, next 100 years was just perfect for them. But it was far from perfect for the Muslims. The Muslims found themselves ruled by people that they hated and at the drop of the hat would kill them, would torture them in dark prisons uh, um, um, and never to be seen again. So they feared their leaders. They never had any um, real contract with their leaders like we do in the West. Yeah? That's why you know, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of um, uh, English people say, like I used to white people out there, English people say to me, English white, non-Muslim people say to me, you know, well, there's, there's no democracy in the Muslim world, you know, there's nothing wrong with you Muslims. 
there's a good reason there's no democracy in the Muslim world, because look what happens when there's democracy in the Muslim world, those old leaders that we've put in place get, get overthrown. The problem with this order and this tension came, in my view, or, or one of the main things that, that, that changed was technology itself. Technology enabled, the internet enabled, millions upon millions of young people, young demographic in the Muslim world to become instantly um, politicised. They could understand their place in the world instantly, share information, share history, share uh, uh, um, um, thoughts, ideas, and the currents could sweep in, in, in instant, uh, 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 within an instant, across uh, um, millions and millions of people. I myself have seen it right here in the UK. I mean, I've been an activist for 20 years, and when I first started, Muslims were completely apolitical. I mean, seriously, you have no idea how hard it was to get them to do the most simple political action. But now, young people, I mean, 13, 14, 15 year old people, are highly politicized, and it's nothing to do with, you know, me banging on about it. It's the internet, social media. It's changing the way they think. They understand the world far better than their fathers did or their even older brothers did. And this political consciousness was not driven or siphoned via the government. Not this government, not Middle Eastern governments. Information for the first time was reaching people directly. I often hear the government, uh, I'm going to come back to it, the government says, oh, the internet is radicalising people. Ooh, the internet, you know, that dangerous thing, the internet. And, and in a way, they're right. It is radicalising people because they know what's going on. It's not the internet is radicalising, as uh, you know, a lot, lot of uh, um, uh, people like to say um, to, to me, oh, it's radicalising people because there's some wicked, evil man with horns preying on, you know, young children. It's just a myth. Along with technology was a massive blunder by Blair and Bush. You see, I think if I was an elite and one of the people who were making lots of cash out there, right, out of the Middle East, is I would like to keep that order. Good for me, cheap oil, yeah? Make sure those, those, those guys don't get out of their pram because we've got some guy who will murder them in the middle of the night. What I would do is maintain that order. But Bush and Blair's messianic calling um, led them to, to wage war and dismember and destroy Iraq. And that gave a space to people to take out arms, violence. Ideas can be combined with arms is the problem that we are facing. The idea that these people don't accept the order that they were, they were forced to live in for 100 years. But the arms, they're self-evident. That's where the war on terror comes in. Because unlike a lot of white guys who say war and terror, our government's told us that that's to kill the, the, the radical, evil, Islamist, jihadist, evil guy, right? The war and terror is nothing to do with that. The war and terror is an unending war 
for one reason, to maintain an order, an order that they are fast losing control of, an order in the Middle East and spreading to the whole Muslim world. Uh, it's called Physicians, forgive me, let me just give you the name of this group. Physicians for Social Responsibility recently did a research uh, uh, on how many people uh, um, have died since the War of Terror have begun. Mainly these people will be Muslims. And they said that the minimum was roughly 1.3 million, and they said could be as high as 2 million. Other researchers say that the figure is double that. You think about that. Two million people dead in 10 years, Muslims. That is carnage on a whole new level. For what? Are all those two million radical Islamic jihadists, whatever propaganda world they want to say, is that why you would kill two million people? What are they trying to stop here? here's the government's conundrum. If they say what I'm saying to you, the average white guy who elects them is going to say, well, why are you doing that? I don't really understand why you have to kill two million people over there. I get that we might get some cheap oil out of it, but I'm not too comfortable about it. And ergo, a movement, an anti-war movement, may start right here in, in, in the belly of the beast, and the government is going to have some real problems. So no government in its right mind that wants us to maintain an order, now that's not a small thing. You know, I'll fight for my car or my rubbish Sony phone. You've got the whole Middle East in your back pocket, you're going to fight for it. So they've got a conundrum. We lose the Middle East, or we fight for it. So they told their people, and they have to make their people pliant and, and make them understand and make them agreeable to it. They said something that um, appealed to their prejudice. It was genius. The more I think about it, the more I think, wow, how cool is that? They knew that the non-white, not average, non uh, the average, average white European non-Muslim, I'm just going to call you white guys for the sake of it, yeah? Um, is, had been trained for over a thousand years to have a kind of mistrust at the very least, hatred at the, the worst of Islam and Muslims. Go back and read, read your history, read the, look at the images of Muslims throughout, throughout Western European history. Dark people ready to stab you in the back or kill you or you know, murder your wives or marry your wives, right? It, it, there was always this undercurrent of, of negative um, stereotypes about Muslims. They didn't go, we didn't launch the crusade and go and murder uh, um, 70,000 people in, in Jerusalem, men, women and children, because we loved them. There was a hatred there that drove that and they, they played on that. And no different now. So what they said is this, like, how do we get these guys, our guys, to back this war? And so what they said is, these Islamists, these jihadists, look, look how evil they are. And they showed these evil guys, and no doubt they were pretty evil, right? And they said, that's what we're trying to stop. Now, how can you, right-minded, good white people, not agree with that? How can, you, how can you, in your right mind, say that we shouldn't stop these guys? And I guess, you know, 
good people, right, said, okay, yeah, that's fair comment. Let's, let's stop it. Uh, let me just clarify. I know not everyone. I'm not saying that everyone. I know there's a Stop the War Coalition. I know there's Russell Brand. I know there's George Galloway. Of course I'm not saying that white people. I'm just saying it's simple, yeah? A large segment. So what they said is this. We, they said to these people, we have... Uh, uh, got to fight these Muslims and we've got to wage this war on terror. And by and large, we allowed them because of this propaganda. And, in my opinion, because of our prejudice. Not my prejudice, but a large section of white people's prejudice. And I'll prove, and I know some people say, no, that's not true, but it is true, right? You can kill two million white people and not have, have a, a third world war with nuclear warheads flying. A, a, mem a memorial, statues, minute silence. You couldn't do that. In the last 10 years, 2 million Muslims are dead, no one even knows about it. And when they flee from their countries that we've destroyed, then we say, some people say in the, in the newspapers that, that we employ, some people employ, call them cockroaches that they're drowning in the seas. Trying to get to Europe is that, you know, here we're, we're full over here. He said not to be too blunt, but I don't do a bit too blunt. That's my, that's my kind of thing. Anyway, this led to an even greater problem, however. Here's the problem. The more the government said that the Muslims were the bogeymen, and they said, no, all Muslims are Muslims, are good guys, it's a warping of Islam, it's, 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 it's good Muslims, but then, then there's people who twist Islam and they, they become the bad Muslims, right? The more they followed this narrative, it was so ludicrous, so nonsensical, yeah, that a lot of the right in this country and a lot of people, uh, the elites who are right started to basically just mean, yeah, yeah, I get your point, but it means Muslims, right? And so the prayer, you turned on the TV, it was anti-Muslim. You open the newspaper, there's always a story about Muslims. Muslim pedophile, Muslim this, Muslim, Muslim kicks the curb, I try and damage you know, Britain's great infrastructure, right? So the fact of the matter is, the, 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 the Muslim became the bogeyman in Britain, because that's what you have to do. If you're going to attack someone, you can't have them great guys, are you? You're not going to allow nice guys to be killed, yet there have to be something bad about them, right? So, Muslims in this country, as they became demonized and, and vilified, and the government started coming out and lying to the public, and Muslims knew full well it was a lie. Muslims knew full well it was foreign policy. The, the fissure, the, the, the fissure developed, the, the contract between state and its citizen, the Muslim citizen, fractured, or began to fracture. And so that's where you have the, the, the people leaving this country going to join ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whoever, because they no longer saw this government as legitimately looking after their concerns. That's difficult to accept, but that's my contention. You can ask me in, in, in Tuna if, if you disagree with me. Muslims no longer felt equal in this country. <coughs> and they have good reason not to feel equal. The fact that so few Muslims have turned to violence is a testament to the moderation of Islam. So here's my uh, um, um, uh, final piece. Uh, I'm sure this is a way to go. And it's, it's getting bored, right? But I'll just tell you the last bit, right? 
test me on this in the future, all right? Here's the conundrum. It's, it's a conundrum simple as this. War or freedom? The Muslims over there want freedom. But we are not going to give up the Middle East without war. So now you see drone strikes, you can bet your bottom dollar it is only a matter of months or years before we will back, be back in the Middle East for a full-scale war. Because there's no way on earth that this government, the American government, or any other government that is involved in there is going to allow that to occur. But that is the root and branch reason for terrorism and the war of terror. Thank you very much. Uh, let me just say one thing. If you ever hear music, this is making goes on. The two tango sessions going on each side of us. I uh, just wonder if any of our people may be here in the tango in one state. Anyhow, thank you. That's all it's over to you. Well, then they would have been tangoed quite well. But thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, I'm not sure if I can follow the example set by Asghar. He does. Uh, say things bluntly. <laughs> um, firstly, assalamu alaikum, peace be on you all. Um, I will hopefully give you a theological perspective. He's given more um, his analysis of the geopolitics of the Muslim world. Theologically, where does and what does Islam say about all this? Well, I don't want to say what does or Islam, what doesn't Islam say about it. It's more important that we actually look at what does Islam say in a more enlightened and positive way. And that's missing from our discourse. That's missing from our conversations. There is a misunderstanding amongst Muslims and non-Muslims today that Islam is an unenlightened religion, a religion of backward people, a religion of a people who are not interested in education, a bunch of people who are only interested in fighting and ritualistic worship and blind following their old faith and their doctrines and dogma. I want to challenge all those ideas, and I want to really tell you that is not Islam. That is not the Islam I follow. And that is not the Islam I have been trained to teach others. I'm a cleric, so I do this every day. The first word of revelation that came to Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, wasn't to fight or to pray or to fast or give in charity. The first word of revelation was read. God's first command to Muhammad was read. And he was an unlettered prophet. He did not know how to read or write. To self-deprecate yourself would be nothing better than to come to your society and say, guys, God has just told me to tell you to read, but I can't read. If he was inventing a command by himself, surely he would be stupid to tell the world, read, but I don't know how to read. He wasn't making it up himself, because he did not know how to read or write in his entire life, never learned it. But he read the words of God as it came to him. Now that's quite difficult to accept, I understand. It's quite difficult to understand. And I also understand it's quite difficult to grasp the depth of it. But we don't have to go very far. On the week when we had only Holy Grails coming from Cameron's mouth, we also had Holy Birmingham giving the world a gift of the Quran, the original Quran, the oldest one, the manuscript that, found, that has been found in this world, or at least in our time. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not sure if you understand the significance of it, but I do, because I'm a Muslim and I believe in my words of, I believe in the words of God. It's a huge significant event for me. 
for the Quran that they found, a small section of the Quran as a manuscript in Birmingham, has been carbon dated to 1370 years. That puts it right next to, in fact, more contemporary than any other books ever at the time of the Prophet himself. Within 20 years of his death, this has been carbon dated. In other words, this Quran was either written by one of his companions, or somebody who learned from the companion. Or it could be that this Quran was written by a companion at the order of the Prophet, because the Prophet did assign scribes to write down the words of God as they came to him. It could be one of them. So for me as a believer, it's hugely significant. I'm actually looking at a handwriting of a companion that I revere who lived with the Prophet. So for Muslims, the word read is significant. More than significant is the first command of God. So Islam isn't a religion of an unenlightened people. It's a religion of nothing but reading, being literate, being intellectually deep. In fact, foregoing superstition and all the other mumbo-jumbo of the past and in, 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 embracing enlightenment as the way forward. That's why Islam began, began its journey. The Prophet challenged the society around him. That's on one side. If you look at the world today, 80% of the world's illiteracy rate comes from the Muslim world. What's gone wrong? A group of people whose first command is to read, how come they're the most illiterate people on this earth? There is a reason for it. Not religious, but more socio-political, geopolitics, that we have imposed from our country, our continent, onto those people. A reality that has become theirs, a reality that is not theirs by choice, but by imposition. If Muslim communities were left to themselves, they would be enlightened. They'd be reading, producing what they produced not that long ago. When Europe was the depth of darkness, modern Spain, when it was under the Muslims, they were creating the Averroes, Avicenna of the world, Ibn al-Rushd and Ibn Sina, as we call them in Arabic. So that's number one. Number two, if a group of people are enlightened, they will not behave irrationally. So I asked Pakistani friends, why is it that Pakistanis love the Prophet more than everybody else in the world? Anybody, anytime there's a cartoon, anybody insults the Prophet, more people die in Pakistan than any other world, parts of the world. But I'm not surprised they die in Pakistan in more number than any other part of the world. It's a repressive country in which people have no right to express themselves freely and truly. And the only time they're allowed to express themselves freely and truly is when it comes to religious father, dominated by dogmatic leaders and preachers, and the government allows that because that's the father that they want the masses to be intoxicated by, not the political reality, and not challenge the political status quo. So it's okay, go ahead. Do the marches behind your magbullahs, we'll celebrate it. But don't you ever threaten our political throne. If you do, you'll be locked up in prison. A country like Lebanon, a country like Syria, where political marches were not allowed, when Denmark published cartoon, even the government says, go ahead, demonstrate, it's okay. It's okay to burn down the Danish embassy. Irrational behavior comes from a people who have lost the sight of their religion, their true <coughs> scripture, the scripture that teaches them to be rational. Did the Prophet ever execute a single person in his lifetime for insulting him, mocking him, deriding him? Never. Never. There are people who are hell-bent on saying, yes, he did. No, he didn't. He never did. There are people who are executed because of treason. The international punishment for treason, even today, in America, is death sentence. So let's not 
mix up the incidents in history. So Prophet never uh, uh, assassinated, uh, never executed anybody or ordered the punishment of anyone who insulted him. Irrationality came as a result of lack of enlightenment. And enlightenment isn't there because the, the uh, environment isn't there for them to learn or find opportunities to learn. So those are the three most important things I wanted to say. The second aspect of, of what I want to say about theology is that God says every person's life is sacred. That's what the Quran says. You take one life, it is like you've taken the lives of the entire humanity. And yet, why is it that the Muslims, in quote unquote, are seen to be taking the lives of the entire humanity? They're killing one another, they're bombing here, bombing there. And who are these people who are doing it? I want to know who is Al-Shabaab. I want to know who is Al-Qaeda. I want to know who is ISIS, who created ISIS. Where did they come from? I want to know where did they, where did they get their funding from. I want to know where did they get their intelligence from. I want to know who trained them. I want to know how is it possible that ISIS could walk in from the wilderness of Syria into half of Iraq without our intelligence services, our satellite system, all the sophisticated machinery of the world not noticing that they are marching through an entire country and taking it over. Why and who did it? Please don't tell me I am responsible for ISIS. I am not and not a single Muslim of the world is responsible for creation of ISIS. And it's an insult to my, my religion because my religion, Islam, never supports ISIS, will never support ISIS. What ISIS is doing is totally into Islam. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen, I've earned the right to speak like this. I live with a death threat right now from lunatic groups such as Al-Shabaab and uh, ISIS. I live with one. I had to relocate my family out of this country to a safe place because I can't live here because of the death threat they've given my family. And I'm doing it because I spoke against terrorism and extremism of the world. I've earned that right to speak. And I'm saying to you, my religion does not condone ever. And anyone who does it cannot claim to be Muslim because Islam is totally against terrorism and extremism. These people don't represent him. Murdering one person is like murdering the entire humanity. That's the bottom line. Islamic law, Sharia, has been so badly misrepresented and hijacked by every lunatic in the world, from ISIS to the right-wing neoconservatives. They all love the word Sharia. Use it and abuse it as you like. Did you know the five objectives of Sharia is to protect and guarantee life, property, intellect, family, and faith of people? If any country, any people can claim to be following Sharia and don't comply with the five objectives as the litmus test, they don't follow Sharia. That's why I say Britain is more Islamic than most Muslim countries. Because in Britain, we have all of those guaranteed and more. And finish, I want to finish off by saying, so to me, those people who have done what they're doing has nothing to do with Islam, and we all know this. We also know the current state of the Muslim world is in a bad state, it's a terrible state. But masses of people are un unenlightened, uneducated, and I've given you reasons. My parents came to Britain because they wanted opportunities in the, six, in the 50s. My father came here in 1956. And he said he would go back in 10 years' time never to come back again. But he's still here. He didn't go very far. And he's not going to go. I'm not going to go. My children are not going to go. In fact, uh, Asghar, sorry to disappoint you, I'm married to a white woman, so you may, may contradict your theory, but I know you were saying it in tongue-in-cheek. 
Um, my children are partly Bangladeshi in heritage, heritage, that's where my parents come from, partly Hungarian in heritage, that is where their mothers come from, mother, mother comes from, and together we have our two children, and when you ask them, they conveniently answer. One, sometimes they would say, we are Banglish, Bengali, and English. Sometimes they would say, we are Hanglish, depends on who they're talking to. If they're talking to their friends in the, play, in the playground, we're just English. To us, there is no conflict in being English, no conflict in being British, no conflict in being Bangladeshi, Hungarian, or any other identities you like, and Islam or being Muslim. None whatsoever. I'm very comfortable wherever I live, wherever I am. In fact, what I am told, and I'm told very categorically, that in any community I live, the community I live with are my people. Are my people. And that's what the Quran says. Every prophet God sent to every nation addressed the people, saying, all my people. You are my people, I belong to you. So I often say to the Muslims, please answer me these three questions. Do you consider yourself even better question, when I ask them, where are you from? And they often rise, raise their hands, Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, tell them, put your hands down. Do you feel you belong to this country? Is this your home? If the answer is yes, and emphatically yes, then you're in the right place, and you're doing the right thing. And if it's not, then there's a problem. Do you, do you believe people around this country, everyone, regardless of their color, their background, their religion, their ethnicity, or, did, or, or anything with that, for that matter, they're your people? And if the answer is yes, fabulous, you're being a good Muslim. And if the answer is doubtful, then there is a problem. And the last question I ask many Muslims, or most Muslim friends, that will you be prepared to do everything for the well-being of this country and the people of the, the country in which you live? Yes, the answer must be, if there is any doubt and hesitation, then there is a problem. You're not being a good, loyal Muslim. So there is no conflict in being a Muslim, being British, and living in this country. But when it comes to talking about, about politics, when we're dishonest, that's when we have a problem. When we have our foreign policy based on self-interest, we have a problem. When our international agenda is de determined by unethical uh, uh, trade organizations and lobby groups, then there is a problem. And when British values are, uh, are straight-jacketed and uh, narrowed into a small corridor of uh, litmus tests or measures, do you support Israel's right to exist? Uh, or do you condemn Hamas? Or do you support homosexuality? These are values that has been uh, thrust on our face. If you don't support it, you're not British enough. Since when did they become British values? Since when? Prime Minister, in his recent speech, made those explicit comments, and I found that disgusting. To me, British values to be tolerant, respectful, to promote equality and justice, be a solace and a haven for people who are persecuted around the world, be the objective broker of peace and justice in the world, to speak the truth, be honest and hardworking, be the people who are punctual all the time, we keep our promises. Those are British values. By the way, they're universal values too. They're also followed in Timbuktu. So, ladies and gentlemen, theologically, I feel very uncomfortable when people uh, isolate me and say, you're Muslim and therefore you don't belong here. I feel very uncomfortable. So now I've made it my mission. I've made it my mission to call Britain more Islamic than any Muslim countries. Thank you very much. <laughs>
community, there is a sort of generational conflict going on that I went through in the 60s. You know, when we were sort of being created and we had a great four generation who wanted to recreate parts that never existed. Is that going on in Los Angeles? Yeah, Who would like to ask a question? James and Tom. 
Hi, um, thank you. Fascinating hearing your stories there. Um, I read once that in the Quran, women are seen as equal to men in the eyes of God. They're born as partners together. Um, of course, in the Bible, it's woman is born of man, the rib of Adam. So I think it's quite interesting the way that Christian religion seems to have enabled women to become more equal, yet Islam still doesn't seem to have gone very far down that road and seems to not be following the Quran. So how true is that? What's in the Quran and uh, what's, going, what's happening in Islam in relation to the role of women? I don't see it, obviously. But okay, let's take three <coughs> Sorry, how is that relevant to the topic? I came here hoping to hear rational voices. I've read the Quran. I've got friends who are Muslim. And what do I hear tonight? People who say they're blunt. I've learned tonight that the Muslim world in the Middle East, before this dreadful European descent, were all Democrats. <laughs> they could all elect their own people. I mean, what I'm hearing tonight fills me with utter despair because I don't hear people who want to be engaged, who want to take any responsibility for anything. It's all the secret services, the Americans, Bush and Blair. Okay, let's take one more point and we'll come back and answer your discussion. Um, definitely. Hi, thank you for your fantastic talk. Uh, there is no such thing as an empire and a democracy. These two things do not exist together. An empire is known by the church or whichever particular religion is dominant. And uh, therefore, there can be no democracy, in, which basically upholds the human rights of the individual. So, uh, asking for the last hundred years and for a no dictatorship in your in your country is impossible because there is no uh, democracy. So my question is, uh, which is more important or higher? Which is the highest law, the human rights law, or the law of the Quran? Okay, let's take that one first. Incidentally, can I tell you that in September, we're actually, our next meeting here is on the subject, is human rights universal? Or is it different in different cultures? And so we're going to debate that topic. But that's an interesting point. I mean, just to do a sort of preview to that meeting, do you want to take that point out? Do you think human rights, there are human rights which go across the board? Or do you think that there are specific cultures? Uh, look, theology, right? I prefer to ask my dad answer it. But my dad's cursory, you know, I'm not a theologian at all. Yes, could you speak louder? Sorry, apologise. As far as the theological question, I'm going to let Ajmal uh, answer, and he's far more logical than I am on theology, right? But from my you know, uh, from understanding uh, of, of the Quran and human rights, I think they, they're the same thing. I don't really understand it when, when even Muslims say to me, you know, this kind of, you know, Quran and human rights. 
that whole point of the Quran, the whole point of a God, the whole point of God created mankind is to be good to each other. What's the point? That, that, that's, that, to me, the whole point of religion is about human rights. I don't think religion is about rituals. Personally, I must sometimes get upset when I say that, but the whole point for me for religion was about human rights. But a yeah, theological gentleman, I don't know. Cool. There are loads of questions, all of them are interrelated. So the human rights issue, Asbury is absolutely right in Islam. Um, I think the, the, the question I was asking is human right, but does, does human right, does it come first or does religion come first? Was that the gist of your question? Yeah, which, which you, yeah. of course, but I, one is a dictatorship though, and the other is a, a democracy and a collection for the people. So, so I, I think to mutually exclude them, would be an unfair narrative from a Muslim perspective. I can understand the perspective you're coming from, but and, uh, I think Asghar began that story by telling us that the world has emerged in the today's discourse with two narratives. One narrative is very dominated by a secular uh, narrative uh, that we see today. There is one which is religious, and the one which is religious, I adhere to the Islamic narrative here. And number one. Number two, there is perhaps a misunderstanding or maybe an assumption on our part that when human rights declarations were drafted at the United Nations, Muslims were, Muslims were not involved. I think that's also a misnomer. Muslims were involved. In fact, many big theologians, including some of them are great scholars that I adhere, I admire and follow, were actually architects involved in making that human rights declaration draft in the earlier stages. And I can give you the names of those scholars that I have or follow greatly. Ismail Razi al-Faruqi being one of the ones who was known as the father of uh, Islamic intellectual thought in America, migrating from the Middle East and living over there. And many others, Sheikh Jamal ibn Abdu, Al-Ashid Redda, Jamal ibn Abghani, many of those people and their writings have influenced Western thoughts when it comes to writing about uh, human rights, including Averroes ibn Rushd writing, which uh, uh, is attributed to the Enlightenment at large. We are told that if it wasn't for Ibn Rushd Averroes translating the Greek books um, of Aristotle and Plato into legible Latin, uh, industrial revolution and enlightenment in Europe would not have happened. So there is an overlap. There is obviously convergence of ideas on a regular basis, and I believe those human rights were mutually drafted in the beginning. Now, where there is a slight variance, we have to accept the variance. We can't all expect everyone to agree on everything. So, for example, the variance that you are you would refer to, or I'll refer to, would be on the issues of sexuality, homosexuality. There are two narratives. Let's learn to live with it. We can't force the other to accept our ones as absolute truth, and that's the reality of life. So, Islam takes one and the other. So, human rights and Islamic law are they in conflict? I don't see. I don't see them in, in conflict. I think they're mutually inclusive and they can work hand in hand. Just to come back to the question about women in Islam again. There, is, there are Muslims and there is Islam. There's a great writer whose name is Muhammad Asad. In his book he wrote, uh, don't judge Islam by the behavior of Muslims, but judge Muslims by the yardsticks from the Quran and the sayings of the Prophet. Um, and you will find in Islam that spiritually, uh, emotionally, uh, um, in every aspect of life, uh, man and woman have been given exactly the same equal right in the eyes of God. Now, how men and women treat one another in their social context, I'm sorry, it doesn't necessarily always fit the Islamic bill. I come from, my parents come from Bangladesh background. When I got married, I, uh, my wife and I were walking along the road holding our hands. My father freaked out. 
He hit the roof. How dare you do that in public especially? And why is that dad? He goes, well, you should not be doing that. So my wife reacted. She's a Hungarian woman. She said, am I inferior somehow that I can't hold your son's hand? My father said, no, it's nothing to do with inferiority. It's just that we're too embarrassed to express our intimacy out in public. But you're not. So there is slight difference even in that cultural expressions. And some of these cultural expressions then stem into behavior in aspects of society. Unfortunately, that society has nothing to do with Islam. And finally, the question to do with uh, Muslim world taking responsibilities. I understand your despair, sir. I would love to have a, a longer opportunity to sit down and discuss openly and one-to-one the complexities of the issues that are at hand and we can't waste to do justice to them. I entirely agree with you. I'm on the verge of writing a book called What's Wrong with the Muslims? Um, not, 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 not what is wrong with the West, but what is wrong with the Muslims. I understand there is something wrong with the Muslim world. I'm saying, no, I'm saying that. Oh Lord, take it from me. I understand there is something wrong going on in the world today. But there are two sides of the same story. While we are trying to tackle extremism and terrorism, we can't blame the Muslim world for extremism and terrorism when extremism and terrorism, by far, from experts, the terrorists themselves, academics have attributed all of those and most of those to our international relations. How we support dictators and despots. An example is Egypt. Good example, and I'll finish with this. In Egypt, Muslim Brotherhood was elected into power by the majority of the people. But we now support Sisi, who was an elected dictator, who got 99% of the votes by force, and he's been invited to come to Britain, and we're silent. In fact, we're supplying imams right now. So how do you think the Egyptian masses should react when they express their freedom to elect their own elected government, we disapprove, and we support the toppling of that government, and then we support the instilling of a dictatorship? What should the Egyptians do? They try democracy, it doesn't work. They try peaceful protest, it doesn't work. There are 100,000 Egyptians or political prisoners rotting in prison today because of our foreign policies. I'm sorry, it is. Anyway, the camera. Yeah, yeah. You, you wanted to come back in your long period uh, for for about the end, particularly, I've had this type of you know, incredulous response so many times. I find it fascinating, uh, and it's cracked my brain, right? How such a simple thing it can get, you know, yeah, I know something about magic. Many non-Muslim white people can't get their heads around it. What can't you get your heads around? The, in Iraq, before the first bomb dropped, we murdered half a million children due to sanctions. Which what part of that can't you understand that might upset someone? No, no, let me finish my point. Let me finish my point. Let me finish my point. We've ethnically cleansed or helped ethnically cleanse four million Muslims in, uh, and Christians in, in Palestine. We destroyed uh, uh, Iraq. We destroyed Afghanistan. We, we have set up dictators. No one can deny it, right? From, from Egypt all the way through uh, the, the Middle East, even toppling, and Obama admitted it, uh, 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 an elected um, um, uh, prime minister in, in, in Iran. Which part of that do you think, when they're torturing, murdering people across the Muslim world? As I said, after 9-11, in, in, in the last 10 years, we've killed between 1.3, according to not my statistics, that's right? so academic research by physicians, 1.3 to 2 million people in, in, uh, across the, uh, the Muslim world in the war of terror. 
you know, I'm not so, I'm shocked when I hear when I hear uh, uh, non-Muslims go, oh, I can't believe you're blaming us. Of course I'm blaming you. Who do you think it is? You know, it's, it's not the theories. You see, you know, it's shocking. I was on the, the, the radio the other day, and, 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 you know, some presenter was saying the same kind of, you know, shocked. So shocked that, you know, can't believe that you're, you're putting the blame on anyone, you know, on, on us white people. Hold on here, right? Just, just, just think this through. Forgive me, generally, I know not all white people, right? Uh, like, of course I know that, right? And I know there's many white people who went for stop the war and far better than me. I know that. I'm just making a general thing about non-Muslim Europeans who are of that ilk, who, who believe in the government. Okay. Well, I just finished the point, right? Sorry. Look, right? When, when, when um, a, 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 a white guy who recently killed, who, who tried to kill someone in a Tesco's in, 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 uh, in, in, I think it was in Wales, he tried to chop his hand off, stabbed him in the back. Yeah? The BBC headline was this, Revenge for Adebalajo. So now he has a reason. A white guy goes to kill someone, chop his hand off. was a reason? He was angry about what Adebalajo did to me. Right? Um, and when, when um, Charlie Hebdo, those attacks that happened over Charlie Hebdo in France, I think it was 238 attacks, Islamophobic attacks occurred in France. If you ask any non Muslim, you go, why is that? Oh, because of Charlie Hebdo. If you have, why did you attack Afghanistan? 9 11. There's always a reaction by, you know, people who understand that from white people. They have a genuine reaction. Why did you attack 9 11? So that people want to bomb you. But when Muslims do it, I just can't believe it's because of us. Why? Okay, listen, what, what I want to do is I want to try and keep the answer short so we can get as many. I know, I know. I want to get as many people in as possible. So you here. Very educated, good people at our 
they are equally sitting there talking about something. And especially when they brought Iraq, and I am Iraqi, and I am sorry, all your information is wrong, and it's not true. It's the media bias which tell you that, and we want to prove to the world that Muslims got nothing to blame for. We are to blame. I know most of the politicians now ruling Iraq, they were here on benefit in London for 30, 40 years, and now they are all criminals and thieves. What are we to do with that? We elected them. We elected these. Now, I prefer, I thought, I'm coming here to listen to two Muslims, but on both sides. One explaining what, how good Islam is, and the other one who say the truth about what Muslims do to themselves. Isn't that, should be fair? When you say, you are talking about terror, we are the terrorists. We, I lost 21 persons of my family to the regime before the West even been there. And when you say half a million children killed, killed by Saddam, I was there and I know he had the right to buy medicine, he had the right to buy food, but he was keeping children in the freezer so he can get them in bunches, 100 or 150, to demonstrate to the world that the West killing the children. Okay, well, let's take those three points first. Could you take the first point about, because I know you've done a lot of, uh, you've said a lot about this, and that is, are Muslims as well represented in British society? What can be done to help them be more represented? In politics? Yeah, it's just a safe point. Look, you're absolutely right. The fact, as far as Muslims, if you're getting angry and doing something silly right here in the UK, the answer is a to get involved in a political process to try to establish some sort of movement, some sort of um, anti Join some sort of anti-war force, you know, along with many people here at the shore, right? And it does express their anger at what's going on around the world in a constructive way. And there's two problems with that. The narrative that I've just said that seems to be upset some people in, in the audience also upsets the government. And the government is it says that anyone who talks like that, uh, if David Cameron actually mentioned the organisation that I speak for um, in, in his last speech, saying, don't listen to them, they're, you know, he didn't actually mention it, but he deemed it true. So when Muslims um, say that they are angry about what's going on abroad, they are actually deemed as a as a as a extremist or something, and so they they stay silent about it. They become frightened to speak, and that frightened when you become frightened to speak out, uh, or I'm a bit mouthy, young Muslims are more frightened, more timid about it. Then they internalise it, and then if I can't say what I feel, I can't say how angry they are, and then that leads to them not taking part, as you say. Are they well represented? No, partly. Fear. Partly they aren't, they're not as politically mature as they need to be. Partly they don't trust the government and think the change will come of it. So that's the There's a lot of work to do. I accept your point that we're not represented. Partly our fault, partly the government's fault. And the lady's point, which seemed to be saying, look, you know, there's a bordering on Muslims, Christians. Do you see the world as a class, class of civilizations? Um, <laughs> so that question was for the other gentleman. But he can choose his chair. Right? Yeah, yeah, but we, we, well, we can come back. We can come back. We can all come back to our, yeah. each other's questions. Um, so let me come back to the first question that was raised. I stood in the last parliamentary election in 2010. I didn't win, but I did do my best and I became second. I didn't have enough money, I didn't have enough manpower. But without all that, we tried our best to make a difference and we did. So that's the first answer. There are, there are lots of people who are trying, but there are lots of barriers to overcome, and those barriers are the ones we need to work together to overcome collectively. 
question about the differences between Christianity and Islam, and if there is a clash of civilization, I don't think the clash of civilization will ever be in the future between Christianity and Islam. I don't think so. Religions will not fight over in this world, in my view. The clash is going to be between, and please forgive me for using the word, but I will have to do it, between religion and secularism. There will be a fight between religious people and secular folks. And when I say secular, let me qualify both. The religious extremists on one side and the secular extremists on the other side would fight with one another in order to show that their views are supreme. And the rest of us who are in the middle will just be the victims of it. And I don't want to see that myself. I don't want to see that myself. I want to see that change. I want to challenge that. But unfortunately, that's the way things are going at the moment. And the question that my friend, the Iraqi friend over there earlier on raised, just to add to your pain and suffer, pain that you've shared with us, before British government waged its illegal war in Iraq, Saddam Hussein came and has been in power for a long time. Um, you, may want, you, you may want to reflect on who did prop up Saddam Hussein in his power, who armed him, who trained him, who sustained him because he was fighting the Iranians. Iranians were then our enemies. So I'm sorry to disagree with you that yes, British government was wrong in waging a war in Iraq because it was illegal. Of course, we all know that. But Saddam Hussein was also supported by British government before when he was also a tyrant and a dictatorship. I don't think uh, Iraqis ever, ever had uh, enjoyed freedom in a natural way uh, for, for, for a very long time. And I think that's true for... When for, we have the British Empire, we can't have it back again. So, so to, end, to end your point, it's not just your country, it's not just Iraq. The entire world has seen this problem. The problem of dictatorship ruling the world. How do we get rid of them? We can't get rid of them because they find arms, intelligence, and support from us. If we truly are Democrats, we should just leave them to it. Let them fight it out. And what emerges from their mess would be for them to deal with. Why do I have to, on this side, support a dictator and not support a dictator? Why? Okay. All right. I'll make note, by the way, we've got to get the British Empire back. Um, <laughs> Fiona. <laughs> Fiona. Fiona, you wait for the microphone because that people will be able to hear I'm, you. I'm sure you can hear this from a few speakers. I want to tell you that the secularists are indifferent to your religion as long as you keep it private. That the state, in other words, we don't have to pay for it. Okay, that's fine. Okay, so I mean, I, I'm sure it was. I think we can agree with that. Okay, yeah. I mean, functional secularity, functional secularity is welcome. It's yeah. fantastic. Okay. But there has to be separation. But I can't be forced from the discourse in public because I'm religious. You can't force me out. I'm going to be speaking my mind. I don't want to impose my religion on you. Of course I don't want to. But I don't want secular world to impose the secularity of me. I want the equality of discourse. I say there should be a marketplace for all this. Let us all compete fairly and respectfully. I'm happy with that. That is another debate that we're going to have, I'm sure, you know, secular versus religious, because it's just on the Muslim thing as well. I mean, Christians and Jews and so on are all, you know, support a view that you might have held then. Secular is totally different view, and I think we need to debate that. And there is also a growing secular Muslim movement, although I know Muslims sometimes don't like to hear that, and that I think we need to debate as well. Um, but uh, let's take another, let's take another point. Anyone? 
Uh, this gentleman here. Okay, I've got you, don't worry. I'm just wondering that underlying all of these issues is hardly anything to do with religion. It has to do with corporate interest. Yes. Really, and I think we should address that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we are all victims of these corporations, including the, the British people here, the indigenous population, because the corporate media control what we think, indoctrinate what we think, and I'm not just including corporate, I'm talking about the British, the BBC as well. So really, I mean, it is about money, it's about resources, it has nothing to do with religion or secularism. I would like you to address that question, because this is really the serious problem we are facing today. Okay, the gentleman back there. So my question to both of you is that why don't we as Muslims, because I consider myself a Muslim from Iran, why don't we consider that, you know, it's just stuff like technology and science will actually get us far? Why don't we focus on that instead of trying to um, not be the victims all the time? I, I, I hear in the news, Muslim states, Muslim, that we actually buy into some of those lies. We start believing it ourselves. Why don't we, for example, concentrate on science? You talk about, uh, you know, 10th century, 11th century, 12th century, you talked about it in Messina, you talked about, you know, there was Abrazi, there was Omar you had all these breaks. What happened to our, you know, Muslim world? I think we didn't actually get it back, but we have to focus on the right thing instead of actually focusing on banning this, banning that, or, you know, food to enter the toilet, you know. I hope you understand. And are you, are you saying we should use technology to do that? No, what I'm saying is that we should concentrate as Muslims. We concentrate because we were great once. But I see a lot of Muslims these days that you know, go back and then you know, they get really upset when people say, for example, Richard Dawkins was talking about you know, how science, the Nobel Prize winners, 20% Jewish, not a lot from the Muslim world. You know, the Muslims got really upset. I, I know it's not the right thing to say. No, I, it's not. It's not. I don't. No, no, no. But it's not right. one thing we have to consider is that there is a problem in our world. We need to actually focus. See, you see, you buy this degree, you completely disregard the, the yeah. problem. There's an issue. Yeah. The West is one thing, and then you have the other side. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, let me go. Let me go to you first on that because that's I mean, yeah, the, the idea of the Muslim world is created so much, but we are also getting forgetting too many negative messages too many from the Muslim world. We buy all the lies. Yeah. Uh, all right. I, I, I get that. Right. So look, let, let's just quickly answer this. Right. On the corporate interest points, right. I one. 100% agree, right? I think there's a convergence of interests, and that's why um, the, the wars that we're seeing, the war that we're seeing, um, is occurring. As I explained previously, right, there are interests. You know, cheap oil is trillion dollar business, right? Um, and uh, as you said, there, there are many corporations that benefit from the uh, world order that, that exists in its current form. That order being unjust to the Muslims, right? Um, but it's not only, uh, forgive me for disagreeing on this, it's not only um, corporate interests. As I said, there's a lot of interests, right? Um, I would urge everyone here to read what called The Last Crusade, quite eye-opening, right? When Donald Rumsfeld and, and um, George Bush and, and his cabal of neocons were sending around their memos, on top of it, there were biblical quotes. 
when they bombed, um, uh, when the bombs were dropped on Iraq, many of them had verses of Isaiah on the sites and the gun scopes that were killing Afghans. Um, there were codes that directly linked uh, uh, to the Bible, uh, not to mention the classic crusade words from uh, um, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Bush and Mr. Bush and God's, his connection to God, Blair's connection to God. So there is um, age-old prejudices from various um, reasons, uh, uh, um, various groups that have a, 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 a reason why they dislike Muslims, you know, in some way or another, and they converge to ensure that um, uh, the Muslim world stays at its is. Just very quickly, do you want to take a step on this point? Because that's a really interesting one, that, you know, the, the, the problems of the world are corporate and economic. They have to do with the fact that people want control, and they use religion in order to get acquiescence for that control. And that's happened throughout the ages. Often they use isms rather than religion, but today they're using religion. You were nodding very much when you said that. Do you want to I agree with, with the gentleman in the sense that um, there is a, a alliance of the grand thieves, I call them, uh, the corporate industries who like to profit from our misery and on a regular basis. That's the problem. Both Muhammad, Moses, and Jesus fought the greedy um, bankers, multinationals at their times, if there were any multinationals, but certainly people who were very greedy. And there are chapters of um, both in both the scriptures talking about it and talking against it. So I agree. The, uh, the influence on the world of media is just beyond belief. Um, Fukuyama wrote, uh, I think, in one of his uh, theses about the manufacturing of false consensus and said that's what the media does very well. And I have been, I've been a victim of it myself, and I've seen communities being victims of it, and uh, then the apology is only one liner at the bottom of the footnote of the editorial, but the attack and the demonization is the front headline. This is how majority, and what, which newspaper sells and is read most in this country? The Sun and the Daily Mail, unfortunately. That, those are the two newspapers that are, but this Daily Mail is found at every airport for free of charge. Everyone is taking it and reading it. So there is that problem. What, what, what are we going to do about it? Can we publish, for example, an alternative narrative to the Metro and the Evening Standard narrative that is coming out every day and 10 million Londoners are reading it in the underground? No, because Metro has got the right to distribute in London, paying London TFL, our government, huge amounts of money. If I want to compete for it, monopoly applies, sorry, no competition. I've been told I can't distribute leaflets or a newspaper outside an underground station because Metro has bought the right. So whether we like it or not, there is a grip, there is a hold, stronghold. And that's how we are, in my view, intoxicated in believing in a particular narrative. Can we challenge that? I would like to. Will, will I be successful? I don't know. I won't. Just to go back to your point, just about the issue of uh, regard to science and, and knowledge and get more of our scientists, etc. Small country like Israel, illegal in some of its behavior and occupation, we condemn it vociferously, and yet it produces the largest number of uh, biotechnology industry um, and uh, IT programmers, filmmakers, producers in the world today than any other country. Hold on, small country, and I'm just giving you a comparison, even if factually I'm incorrect, some of it is correct, that they do a huge amount. So there is a reason for it. There is an, infra there is an infrastructure. It hosts all the best brain of the Jewish communities who can come and do anything they like in Israel and get the support from the government. That is for sure, you can get that. But today, give me one Muslim country 
where a Muslim scientist, a Muslim genius could be housed and said, please come to our country, we'll do everything for you. There isn't any. Do you know why there isn't any? Because hold on. Well, well, we have Muslims in the West. Hold on, let me finish, please, let me finish. No Muslim country would host those Muslims in order to, what I call, um, become more geniuses and produce the best for the world. I so agree. there is a brain drain from the Muslim world to the West. They come here and they do contribute. But that doesn't show in the positive light the Muslim world. Because there is a brain drain. There is no retention factor within the Muslim world. Is it to actually... uh, no, no, hold on. Let me, please, let me finish my narrative. So in the Muslim world, it is impossible to do that. Because the socio-political system and the infrastructure doesn't allow that. So if somebody becomes, for example, the Grameen Bank's founder in Bangladesh, Dr. Yunus, he became such a threat to Bangladesh government that Bangladesh government barred him from traveling, confiscated his wealth, caused him havoc, and he's a Nobel Prize winner. Unfortunately, my friend, too many dictators and despots don't like brainy people. And for as long as that continues in the Muslim world, or developing world, we will not see developing world getting any better. So I would like to see developing world becoming free, democratic, and enlightened by masses, so they can change themselves and see a better future for themselves. Can I okay, yeah. hold on. Do you, want to make, do you want to make a very quick response? Yeah. And I want to get other people in so, and ask questions. So, so my point is with the, all right, uh, I totally agree with you all that you know, the Muslim countries are, I understand, but we have Muslim population in the West. Yes. Recently, a, a female, Iranian female, won the, the Fields Nobel, uh, you know, the Fields Mathematical Award. Why don't we as Muslims get behind these people and support them more instead of supporting this imam and that imam that will be relevant? Okay. A lot of people go to talks by these imams that talk nonsense. We should yeah. go and support. We agree. Okay, let's let's step on here. Yeah, um, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, well. You know, I'm really glad that you came and talked to us and things like that. It's been an interesting talk, but I'm really quite unimpressed by the bottom. And it's, I, the bad things are happening in the Middle East and the Muslim world. And whenever you talk about it, somehow it always yields to this kind of mental gymnastics thing when it goes back to us. The Western world is always a, it's not. The dictatorships were heavily supported by Muslim population in these countries at all because they wouldn't function if they weren't. Wow. They wouldn't have function if they weren't. They, 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 they don't function in that favor. Live in a Muslim country for five days. Sorry? Live in a Muslim country and you see how long you last, my friend. Yes, but basically it's, it's not working. So why is it always somebody else's fault? Because they're not allowed to exercise their so, democratic so, right. Do you be the first one to agree if this country wasn't working, it would be awful. If a Muslim country doesn't work, it's still awful. No. It's not that. We're not saying that. We're never a Muslim country. We're always going to have We're not saying that. Well, he is. No, okay. But there is a disconnect here. So, for example, if I want to if I want to exercise my right, do you know, my friend, in Bangladesh, where my parents come from, I'm banned from going. Why am I banned from going to Bangladesh? I'm, I don't go to Bangladesh, I'm not interested in Bangladesh, I don't do politics in Bangladesh, and yet Bangladesh government has banned me. Do you know why? Because I criticize Bangladesh government for its human rights violations. So I've been banned. Now, if any Bangladeshis do the same, yeah. they get banned, they get locked up, they get killed, they get hanged. So what do you think the masses would do if they live in fear and terror every day? 
They'll do nothing. But you're not doing nothing. I am. That's why I'm banned. I mean, just take that point very briefly. I mean, your argument is, which a lot of people were obviously disagree with in the room, that, that you know, we're blamed, that Muslims blame the West on everything and not themselves when they should sometimes. Um, and that's the point you made. Um, just respond to that briefly. It's a bit of a straw man. I'm not saying Muslims are angels, but everything they do is perfect. Of course not. There's, there's lots of any, any society, you know, any government around anywhere in the world, that they have to do things better and they do things wrong. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that in a broad context, the destruction, the whole scale destruction of over 100 years of a people has led that people into the state it's in. Are they perfectly blameless? No. But does that mean, does that allow Europeans, the Western world, to massacre millions of people? Statistically, that is a fact, right? Over 100 years, proper dictators who torture, kill, maim uh, um, men, women, and children to, 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 to destroy whole societies who no longer can function. So I keep hearing this, these arguments. Oh, well, what, what? Why aren't we more enlightened? Why don't we have more scientists? You don't create hell and then wonder why flower-throwing hippies are not, uh, and philosophers are not being produced. You don't have... Let me finish my point, please. Forgive me, let me finish my point. So, so, so... The, uh, I apologise if I didn't... What was that? Yeah, but, uh, I don't see anything about flower-throwing hippies. So the point is this. The Muslim world over, uh, over 1,400 years that we have been was the height of science, was the height of poetry, was the height of philosophy, was the height of, 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 of ethics, and now it's not. So if you're going to blame Islam, then you've got 1,000 years plus 1,300, 1,200 years of saying, why are they so great? And then, when the colonial powers come and destroy it, going, oh, it's still your fault. You can't wash your hands. You cannot keep being, and it's not you, and forgive me, it's not to talk about yourself, but, but, but European society, Western society, has got a problem. And the problem is, they can go around massacring and enslaving millions of Africans, destroying Africa, and then saying, well, the, the Africans are in the problem because there's something to do with them. They, they go to the, 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 the Americans, slaughter the Native Americans, and go, look at those drunks. You know, so they can't get a good, get, get, get good job. And the same thing they're doing to the Muslim world, and they're still making the same excuses. Stop it. Take some responsibility. You have done crimes to the Muslim world, to the black world, to the Native Americans, and there's no place that, that you should not say, that, listen, we got it wrong, we're sorry, and we should stop what we're doing. I'm not asking for previous history. I'm not saying, let's go back and give us money. Or do it. Just stop what you're doing at right now and try to be better to the world okay. that we live in. Okay, so two, two, two diametrically opposed to each other. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. First time I've ever caught you, gentlemen, isn't it? Come on. Yeah, you're going to go on. First time I've ever caught you, gentlemen, isn't it? the Western world did. 
After the First World War, it drew artificial lines in favour of its own economic interests, and um, it, it, it created artificial nations which laid the basis for serious civil war in years to come, like in Yugoslavia, for instance. We then had um, a conflict between socialism and capitalism, and um, this became very interesting. As certain socialism came under attack, there was um, a deliberate attempt to create Christian fundamentalism and Islamic fundamentalism to fill in the vacuum uh, to, uh, so capitalism could create a hegemony. I'm making comments, but um, it, it's, a big, it's a big subject. But um, I think the problem is with US, British, Imperialism okay. at the end of the day. Okay, yeah. and you want to come very quickly. <laughs> Sorry, the question is just wondering if either of the two speakers have got any thoughts about solutions for the future, how things could be improved. Okay, yeah, let's take that as a very last yeah, question when we, when we get to the end of this chat. Yeah. Uh, the question was what solutions have we got for the future? But we'll take that right at the end. Yes, okay. Someone else. Gentlemen at the back. I've got a very short question. Do you want to wait for the microphone? That will make it a longer question. <laughs> uh, very short question. Am I right in thinking that the Quran is called a warning from God? <laughs> it's what? Is the Quran right to describe as a warning from God? No. It's, that's not the name of the Quran. No, is it, is it described as a... It's described as a reminder, which is a reminder, for Quran, which is a criteria, healer, which is shifa, hidayah is guidance, but not a warning. Not, a, uh, not what Prophet himself has been called as a warner, but not the Quran itself. And what is he warning of? Of the moral consequence of uh, people's greed, of uh, our inequality, on issues of unfairness, on godlessness, on heedlessness. His role was to warn humanity of moving away from the natural discourse on which they should be living. Uh, is that wouldn't do the end of the world. But the end of the world is a, it's an inevitable truth that we all have to be warned about, that the world will come to an end. Get ready for it. Well, as Blake said, where you read black, I read white, because I don't read the Quran. I mean, I mean in, the, in, in that way, Quran and any other scripture warns you about lots of things. In that way, in the definition of warning, anything can be a warning. You know, red light is a warning. So by that definition, yes, Quran, Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, they're all warnings. I mean, just read Revelation and yeah. see how it's a pattern. Well, Revelation and the Quran yeah. say. Okay, but, uh, but I mean, is your point about religion generally taking this this position? Are you arguing that from a secularist point of view? I, I was just trying to ask the point of fact and the fact that uh, the gentleman was talking about uh, future conflicts. Oh, yeah. And, oh, I see. Uh, I, I wondered whether the, uh, the Quran should uh, give him a, a, a warning of, of the, the fact that conflict is uh, expected and uh, is this likely between Muslims, is between Muslims and anybody else, like the Shia and the Sunnis, between Iraq, between um, 
Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Uh, just to be fair with you, there is no mention of Saudi Arabia, Iran, Afghanistan, no, and the Quran. No, it's not. So I think you've got your wives mixed up there for some reason. What, what about the point that, that religion very often does look at the end of the world scenario? Christianity, probably, or some sects of Christianity, even more so than most religions. But is that in Islam? Religion has, by nature, two roles to play, and that is our relationship with one another and our relationship with God. And the relationship with one another and God will come to an ultimate end where we will be judged and questioned. Otherwise, religion will become redundant by, by, by a logical definition. So there is a hereafter as far as religious folks are concerned. And that's when the world comes to an end and a hereafter begins. That's the, the theological narrative. But that does not necessarily abdicate you and me of our social responsibility of making sure our world is good. We're good to one another. We don't have to wait for the end of the world for that. We have to do as much as we can right now, here and now. Okay, someone else. Just take, come back in and accept you if there's someone else to ask and ask a question then. No, you're um, you, you mentioned Sharia again just now. Now, why is it that some Muslims in this country are so unintegrated that they aren't so satisfied with the laws of this country, the, the legal system, and have to have Sharia law? Before you answer that, I mean, it's been over for quite a while. The actual the general sentiment of the question always forgive me, I'm an analyst, not my day today. You have to speak up loud, Sorry, sorry, I apologise. I know I'm not going to get much agreement from the crowd on this, but you know, for what it's worth. I never get, again, you know, I'm not the brightest guy in the world, right, but uh, I never get how, how a lot of normalists, you know, get quite upset about Sharia law. The sentiment is, you know, our law, and you know, your law, why can't you just follow our law? Okay, I get what you mean, you follow our law, that makes complete sense, but um, uh, what I find is that the real root reason of the kind of dislike for Sharia is that, that Sharia is somehow barbaric or in some way, shape or form, and so, you know, it's, it's a bit distasteful to, to the other you know, Englishman. I just find that strange in this way, and I'll be very short pass over to, for, for the detail on Ajman. Let's just take the kind of worst interpretation of Sharia law, right? And I know you, someone does something bad and you chop their hand off. Let's, let's just take that as the worst example, right? I'm, I'm sure there might be others that you might be able to jump. At least the guy who's, who's obviously a repeated thief, right, gets caught, and, you know, he's, he's a repeated thief, he does something wrong, he's not, he's not, he, he doesn't seem to learn his lesson, so they chop his hand off. How about Barry? Well, I find strange about many Englishmen and many Europeans and Western people. The guy got a trial, unlike the family of a drug victim. They chopped his hand off, they didn't murder his family, or his friends, or the village. The crime committed um, by Muslims um, often doesn't even reach court. They see a male in a certain area, it's called signature strike, and it's reported in our media as a military. It's a fact, and you can read a great book by Jeremy Skatehall called Dirty Wars Researchers. They fire a drone or a plane over, they see an, a male of a certain age in an area, and they say, well, a male of that age in that area must be up to no good, and they kill him. And if that now, and the drone operators have, have, have um, uh, once they left their, their, their office, have, have um, publicised this, 
that they have seen those people go into their houses with their families and their kids, and then they've been ordered to bomb that house with their families and their children in it. So I always find it strange, and forgive me, when I hear um, people talk about the barbarity of Sharia law. The law that you gave Muslims far, far worse than, than Sharia law could ever be to us. Okay, who would like to come next? Anyone? No one else hasn't spoken? This gentleman and this lady. Now come back here, sorry. Uh, thank you. Uh, I found this very interesting, to say the least. Uh, my question is in regard to identity. Uh, I find this sort of dichotomy between Muslims and British citizens uh, to be very confusing. Uh, my father is a Pakistani. Forgive the white face, he married a white woman as well. And what I don't understand is the million people that, you know, uh, protested the Iraq war, for instance. Uh, I, I found it an illegal war, but I'm not going and fighting in Syria and so forth. So this, this narrative is sort of very interesting. That it, it always seems to come back to the, the West as uh, some kind of entity that is, is sort of wholly responsible. Do you think that that is harmful to have that dichotomy between Muslims and British citizens when I, I don't think it exists? Okay, and there's a lady back there. Hello. Um, first of all, um, I know various different people have expressed problems with different groups. But some people have said, have talked about British imperialism or American imperialism or things that have been done um, by Muslims. I just wanted to make a point. I spent last weekend in Lithuania. Um, we don't hear anything here about the problems they've had about people um, being sent to concentration camps by the Russians and also by the Nazis. They've had a terrible history recently. And the reason I bring that up is that I think we all, all, all need to understand that man is the most disgusting, aggressive, barbaric, violent animal this planet has ever seen. Therefore, for the future, what we need to see, whoever the group is, is they're putting their best efforts into creating a good society. So I would like to see Muslims supporting scientists, etc., supporting their young people, if they're living here, integrating into this society, forgetting things like Sharia law. That has nothing to do with our society. If we had Sharia law, we'd also be burning witches. We used to do that, but actually we stopped that several hundred years ago, and I think it's for that reason that we find it very hard when we hear about things like Sharia law still being practiced. Now, obviously, you can practice Sharia law in other places. That's got nothing to do with us. But we know, because so many people are coming here, that the British government and British people do try and do their best and there are opportunities here. You know, when I was young, people say you couldn't get on here unless you're aristocracy. You wouldn't hear anybody say that now. It's a meritocracy. I've seen so many people rise. I've worked with black people. I've worked with every person. And there's been absolutely no problems. There's a pro 
problem, that person creates a problem by being a victim and having a chip on their shoulder. And that's what I would like people to take away, and that's what I'd like to see the Muslims doing, being positive and working together with everybody here, and not going off on a tangent which upsets everybody and makes them think, oh my God, we've let you all in, and the next thing we're going to have is violence on the street, because we just all want to live in peace, and we want to go forward in a really great way. Thank you.
have different religions, different races, all come together and be tolerant. I don't think your attitude is very helpful, and I think it's offensive. Okay, I, I apologise if you feel it's offensive. <laughs> Relationship with human relationship, 
with social issues, economics, justice, fairness. 5% of Sharia deal with penal code. Some of the penal code may be distasteful to you and your standard. Remember, it may be distasteful to you and your standard. Remember, it's your judgment against another people's judgment. But it's 5% against 95% with which you agree, because they're very similar. In that 5% of Sharia that you may find distasteful, there are stringent rules that govern the implementations of any of those. An example you used, which is the cutting the hands of the thief. I'm not here to give you a lecture about Sharia, but since it's been mentioned by three, four people, it must be clarified. If somebody is found guilty of theft, the court has to establish that this person has, is a habitual stealer, robber, does it and makes money out of it as a business, is not doing it because they are hungry, they're desperate, they're destitute, the state is not providing them opportunities. Once you've eliminated all of that and you've established this person is a habitual thief who has no other but this, then Islam says, under such circumstances, such penal punishment becomes applicable. Now, how many people in Islamic law actually have experienced this in Islamic time, at the time of the Prophet? We know 16 people in 13 years of life of the Prophet. Can I? See, just, just to finish off, just finish off. So in my view, it's hard to so, what I wanted to say is because we've got to stop very quickly. So, just finish. I, I just want the to solutions. Yeah, the solutions. So, my, my suggestion is let's not generalize without learning. Let's learn more about one another in order to enrich our discussion. Solution. Let's learn, first one. Let's start talking honestly, having honest conversations, even if it hurts. I agree with Azgar in this one, please, and that is if we are honest about it, remember that um, apology video that came out from the Australian Parliament from. Uh, Rudd, uh, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. I don't know if you've seen it. Please go on to Google and put his name. Kevin Rudd, the Prime, uh, Prime Minister of Australia. He made an apology to the Aborigine people. The entire nation was crying. They healed because of that apology. So if we are honest about our conversation, hold on. If we are honest about our conversation, it will help some way for us to come together and heal. And the third and the final, let's create a common narrative, a history that we can share together. A world that we live with our children that is better and safer. In the current one, we can't because it's not a good one. It's a terrible one. So common narrative, honest conversation, and knowledge of one another. Thank you very much. Okay. We've very briefly had a about what you think solutions are. Can you stand up as well? to somehow um, 
be unable to understand that there's anything wrong with them and that they are not responsible for what their government does to people around the world. And I'm not saying they're completely responsible, but there's a tacit acceptance at the least. And on the other hand, it's because that type of person is so good at saying, look how bad you Muslims are, that I feel some joy in giving some back. That's the honest truth. The truth of the matter is this, if you want to know solutions. Muslims are human beings. However you want to see them in the newspapers or see them in your hearts, the bottom line is we are human beings. When our children die, we feel for them. When we see people, whether they're on the internet or not, being murdered or blown to bits or ethnically cleansed in their millions, then we hurt. And their fathers hurt and their mothers hurt. And if you can see them as human beings, then you may hurt enough to say that, that what we are doing to them is wrong. Whatever you feel they're doing to themselves, we shouldn't be part of any harm to any human being anywhere in the world. And what I would say, if we could just see another human being, in the past we saw Africans as dehumanized, and it was okay to, to treat them as slaves. And then the, the Native Americans, they were dehumanized. Aborigines were actually classed under, under the Flowers and Fauna Act, I heard recently, as a fact. And look it up. And, and, and they were dehumanized, destroyed. Don't let the world, whoever information that you're reading and making your opinions about Muslims, make you feel that we are any less human than yourselves. We are not. And until those Muslims, I don't make the decision, we want to gain their freedom and see that they are treated equally to you, then I'm afraid I cannot see in the world that we are living any peace for a long, long time coming. So all I ask of you is, I apologize for offending offending you, but all I ask of you is a simple thing. See us as human as you see yourselves. Okay. speakers to take all of you. It's been quite heated, but not as heated as it could have been. Um, so I think it went, it, it went well. But I've learned several things. One is that I think that the, the things that we're doing with the, with the ethical society, which looks at ethics and politics, and looks at the debate between the secular and the religious, which is part of that, and that was very strong here tonight, because there are quite a few people from the ethical society here. I think it's important for us to keep doing it. But I think if we do keep doing it, it's important that we try and create a dialogue atmosphere. As we all have a lot to learn. I think many of us actually hold very strong views, and sometimes we don't listen. We just repeat the mantras that we've had in our lives. And somehow all of us, and that includes everyone of all types and all beliefs, have got to get past those mantras. And if we can do that, that would be great. We talked with Raina about having smaller groups that we can develop that can look at secular and, and, and faith and interfaith and the way communities can, can, can work together. And I think that's important to do. But I think if we do it, we've got to go into it with a much more open mind than many of us do sometimes. But I think this has been a pretty good beginning. And it didn't get out of control. And it did have a, a really good control discussion, which I think will give us a lot of thought about how we can develop it in the future. And I hope make it successful. So thank you for helping us to learn. And I hope you have as well.